0: Hello again. Uh, Good morning. Um, uh, Please read with me uh, the Word of God from Acts 13, verses 1 through 3, and 14, 8 through 28. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycanonian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven. "'and crops in their seasons. "'He provides you with plenty of food "'and fills your hearts with joy.'" Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derb. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with praying and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had been. They had now comp- completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how He had opened a door to, of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples.
1: Thank you, Justin. We're continuing today in our study of the book of Acts, as we have been doing for the past couple of months. And here we come upon chapters 13 and 14 of this wonderful story of the earliest days of the Christian church and of this movement that became the worldwide spread of Christianity. And so let's pause here and let's pray and ask for God's help before we continue. Let's pray. Jesus, we're asking that you would do an amazing thing. Confess, God, sometimes week after week as we open your word, we can get stuck in the rut of lowered expectations, a routine that sort of takes for granted that your living word actually has transforming power. And so we're, we're going to renew in this moment our belief and our hope that you can do an amazing thing. Even through this time of apparent mundaneness doesn't seem like much to be gathered here together. Or through a broken vessel like myself trying to communicate through human words the eternal word of God. All this doesn't seem like much. But we want to believe because of your promise that over the next few minutes lives can be changed. We want to believe that your Holy Spirit can prick our hearts or encourage our hearts or convict our hearts, or raise new questions in ways that we've never asked or seen before. And so we pray with all boldness of faith, please do that. Please come and please speak, for your servants are listening. We want to hear your voice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Men, walk on the moon. Men walk on moon. 50 years ago, today, as you may know, those four breathtaking words headlined newspapers across the country as the astronaut Neil Armstrong became the first human being ever to step onto the moon's surface. Men walk on moon. That news. And that historic moment forever changed the way we view outer space. Spawned a whole host of movies indicating a new imagination for what might be out there. Spurred new heights of technological progress. Provided new scientific understanding of the moon and of earth and of the space around us. See, news like that. Can change the world. News can change your life. It's a girl. Life-changing news. Congratulations, we're offering you the job. Life-changing news, perhaps. Men walk on moon. News can do a lot, can't it? It can even change your life. So it's worth noticing that in today's passage, in Acts chapter 13 and 14, that when the apostles first tell people in this little town of Lystra about Jesus, people who had never in fact heard about him before, that they describe their message of all things as news. You see in verse 15 there, we are bringing you good news. You see, at the heart of the Christian faith is life-changing news of something that's happened. That something, of course, is that God sent his son into our broken world to make all things new. Starting with you. Because he loves you. See, at the heart of the Christian faith is... Not primarily religious principles, things you need to do, or moral advice about how you need to live your life. It's an announcement. At the heart of the Christian faith is an announcement of something that God has done for you. Not about how you need to do things for God to get him to love you, but rather it's about all that God has done for you because he already loves you. Sinners saved by grace. You see, to put it another way, you're missing the heart of the Christian faith. If you've been picturing a God who's always sort of singing something like those old Janet Jackson lyrics, what have you done for me lately? And maybe keeping with the 80s theme, maybe another song that might be closer to God's heart. If you really want a song title, it might be Prince's I Would Die For You. What's your experience of the Christian faith? Whether if you're new to it or if you believe you've been living it. Is it that of news that's been done for you? Or is it an obligation of what you feel like God is demanding of you? We're encountering this message of good news to Gentiles, non-Jewish peoples, because we've come across this part of the story in which we are now in the third major phase of the movement of Christianity as it's been narrated in the book of Acts. If you've been with us, you may remember that way in the beginning of the story, before Jesus ascended, after he died and rose again, before he went back to heaven, he gave his followers a commission. A charge we hear about in chapter 1, verse 8, when he says, And you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, and then in all Judea and Samaria, the surrounding region, and then to the ends of the earth. We're now here in the part of the story where we're breaking into the ends of the earth, where the gospel is being brought to non-Jewish persons called Gentiles. We saw last week in Acts chapter 10 and 11 and 12, that God's spirit had been newly poured out upon Gentiles without distinction or discrimination. Gentiles, just like Jewish people, were beginning to embrace the grace of Jesus. It was an astonishing development, surely an encouraging one for those who had never heard of this news before. And this then kicked off a brand new endeavor where the Christian followers of Jesus began to now carry the gospel with a new initiative, a new intentionality into Gentile regions of the Mediterranean world. Which is what we find in the beginning of our passage in chapter 13, the first couple of verses there where the Holy Spirit, who in the middle of some time of prayer and fasting and and worship, and by the way, have you noticed that all throughout the book of Acts, how much God comes and speaks to people when they gather to pray and fast and worship. How he gives them new guidance and direction when they humble themselves before him. Well, this was such a time in chapter 13. And here the Holy Spirit says in verse 2, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work of, To which I have called them. And that work, of course, was to catapult them out into Gentile regions, places where they had never heard about the person of Jesus, never heard about this new grace filled vision of God. And so they were sent out on. What was, in the end, Paul's first missionary journey. First of three, in fact. And you'll find a map there in your bulletin, in the sermon section page there, of sort of some of the cities in which the Apostle Paul, together with Barnabas, circled around, one by one, visiting town to town, and bringing good news from people to people, as it's been recorded in chapter 13 and 14 of the book of Acts. For two years... From AD 46 to 48, Paul and Barnabas traveled from Antioch, which was sort of their home base, and they would return back to Antioch again and again. They went out to the island of Cyprus and on to the south central part of modern day Turkey, a region that's often called Galatia, which might ring familiar to you. Paul's letter to the Galatians were written to the churches that were started in that region of Galatia. And one by one, as they spoke to people about Jesus, as people became compelled by this message, as their lives were transformed, as they were converted by the grace of God, Paul and Barnabas started churches in the cities of Pisidian, Antioch, and Iconium, and Lystra, and Derbe. If you think about it, this is amazing. That These were the very first churches ever in history outside of the Jewish world that were beginning to be started. An exciting moment in history. And here we land upon this town called Lystra. Lystra wasn't large. It didn't lie on any important trade route. Sometimes the apostles, as they would march around, they would choose strategic cosmopolitan cities of influence like Corinth, or like Athens, or maybe places like Washington, D.C., if we were to translate it into our modern context. Places where Paul might interact with people that might be well-educated or hold significant positions of influence. See, but here, Paul is doing something different. He goes to an ordinary town because God loves ordinary people. He comes to a place called Lystra where the local people were largely less educated. Some of them were even illiterate. One historian describes Lystra as a, quote, quiet backwater, nothing to see here. In fact, there may be a chance we wouldn't even really know about this small town except for it's mention here in Paul's missionary journeys. And here's what happened when Paul and Barnabas visited Lystra. They came there after discovering that there was a plot to kill them in Iconium. People were so offended by the message about Jesus that both Jews and Gentiles were ready to stone them for preaching. And so they ran away and came down to this town Lystra. And according to verses 8 through 10, we're told that Paul healed a disabled man, one who was crippled from birth. Never walked a step in his life. And here we're told the man jumped up and began to to walk, and the crowd went bonkers. Excited, jubilant, ready to give credit to whoever deserved credit. Well, of course, to them, it was Paul and Barnabas. They cried out, not to Paul and Barnabas, but they said, The gods have come down to us in human form. Verse 11. They identified Barnabas as Zeus, the Greek god, and Paul as Hermes because Hermes was the messenger god, and Paul talked a lot. And so they said, well, if there's power like this, there's no other explaining this, except that they must be the gods who have visited us. And so they brought bulls and wreaths, because the priest of Zeus and we're told the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them, it says in verse 13. And here's what's going. It's really interesting. There was a local legend a local legend that pretty much all the Lystrians probably knew. That not long before, Zeus and his son Hermes visited the hill country, guess where? Right nearby Lystra. But they disguised themselves as ordinary people. And so, of course, a lot of people in the town, thousands, in fact, just sort of ignored them and didn't give the gods the hospitality that they deserved except for one elderly couple, a little peasant couple who lived in a very modest cottage made of straw, who gave out of their poverty and cared for these gods. And so, of course, in the great moment of revealing, the gods rewarded them for their generosity and then destroyed all the other homes who didn't actually pay attention to these gods, take them in. And so it's likely that the Lystrans knew this story And were resolved that if Hermes and Zeus ever were to revisit their hometowns, they would not be caught off guard again. They would not be unprepared. And so here we are. This is their moment. What they've been waiting for. Worship and hospitality as Zeus and Hermes deserved. At first, Paul and Barnabas didn't know what was going on. The crowd, in fact, spoke in the Lycaonian language, we're told in verse 11, not Greek or Latin. So Paul and Barnabas had no idea what was going on until suddenly the bulls start rolling in, right? The sacrifices and the wreaths start coming at them. Then they were able to figure out what was going on. And so, of course, they, verse 14, tore their clothes in dismay. They rushed out into the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We're only humans like you. We are bringing you good news. What was it that Paul and Barnabas said to these dear Lystrans? What was communicated? It was good news. But what is good news? Let's take a look in the moments that we have left. Let's first look at the content of the good news. And then secondly, the communication of this good news. The content of good news, what they said, and then the communication of this good news, how they said it. First of all, the content of good news and what Paul and Barnabas told them was two things. Number one, idolatry and secondly, generosity. They spoke to them about idolatry. Look at the second half of verse 15. They said, we're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Now, that phrase "they're worthless things, was a sort of a nickname that in the Old Testament, the prophets used to use for the idols of the world, the false gods of the surrounding cultures. So, of course, they're referring to this misperception that Paul and Barnabas were Zeus and Hermes. They were speaking out against this false kind of worship. And you might be saying to yourself, well, I'm not an idol worshiper. I don't seem to have a problem with idolatry in the way that these ancient pagan Lysterns might have. And and yet the Bible would challenge us on it, wouldn't we? Wouldn't it? It would say, well, all of us have hearts that naturally worship something, someone. In fact, the Bible would say idolatry at its core is not bowing down to little figurines. And it's not even necessarily ascribing or participating in a formal system of religious worship. Rather, idolatry is simply treating anyone and anything like a God to you. Anything that you bow down and give supreme authority over your life. Anything that you seek to make you more uh, significant. Uh, Anything that makes you uh, feel lovable. Uh, Whatever you turn to in order to make your life more meaningful. Uh, Things that God alone can give to you. And now you're turning to things and people to give to you as a substitute. It might be relationships. Relationships. Maybe that's why you're stuck today in some unhealthy, dysfunctional tie that you just can't give up even though you know it's destroying you because you just need that person too much. Maybe it's even your children that you are treating as an idol in your life, giving you too much of a sense of meaning or purpose or significance. Uh, maybe it's parts of your identity that you might be worshiping, treating as an idol. It might be even part of your racial or cultural identity. If you make that supreme, the defining thing for you, rather than the fact that you are a child of God, the defining thing, your blackness or your whiteness or your Koreanness or your whatever you use to identify yourself with, that will become an idol in your life. Or it might be your gender. It might be your sexuality. It might be achievements that you look to to define who you are. Is that why you're working so hard? Is that why you're so terrified of losing your job? Is that why you're so angry that people don't recognize all that you've been accomplishing? You see, these reveal idols in our hearts. Could it be your body image? Why you're on the literal treadmill all the time, trying to sculpt and perfect your body. Because you've bowed your knee, even, yes, to the very physical image of yourself that you see in the mirror. Could it be your marriage or maybe the prospect of marriage that you're grasping for? What is it in life that you are most tempted to treat as an idol? Here's the thing. You notice how the apostle describes idols Worthless things. It's because we are treating these things as God's ultimate things. When really they are empty. That's another way that you can actually translate that phrase there. Empty things. Wasted things. Worthless things. Not because they are in and of themselves empty and worthless. But when you try to milk from them things they can't deliver on then they surely leave you dry. They surely leave you empty. These are bogus gods, gods that don't even, not only don't deliver, but gods that not satisfying your hearts actually leave you even more deadened, more disappointed, uh, more lifeless. Because when you bow your knee to the idol of work, You don't know how to rest. When you bow your your knee to the idol of a certain relationship, you're always frenetic and afraid of losing that person. When you're bowing your knees to idols, it is always grinding you into the ground. It brings death, not life. And so here's good news. Here's good news to those that struggle with idolatry. There is a true God who is a living God who gives true life. Look at what the Apostle Paul says about this God. Verse 15, the second half, turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This is a God who's the source of life, who can't hold back life-giving power that he has. He actually has power to change you. He actually has power to give you meaning and significance and joy in everything that the false gods around you falsely promise to you, here is a God who really can be all that you dreamed your God might be for you. A God who can help you. A God who's in, who is infinite in worth and who gives you his worth so that you can finally exhale. So that you can finally get off the treadmill. Sometimes literally. What do you see in your hearts With respect to these patterns of idolatry. And do you see the true living God. As Paul preached about him that day. The God who gives life. Not takes life. The God who rescues and loves you. Not steals your love. This is a God who overcomes the idolatry of our heart. Idolatry. But secondly the apostle preaches about generosity. Look at verse 16. He says, in the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. Our God is a generous God. His generosity is seen, first of all, in his patience. Paul says, in the past, he let all nations go their own way. What does that mean? Though we're accountable to him for our sins, he doesn't immediately judge. He withholds what we actually deserve. He's so kind and patient. This old word, long suffering. He suffers long in order to love, to give us a chance to repent, to turn, to receive the grace of God. Do you see the generosity of God? It's seen not only in his patience, but also in his provision. You see what the apostle says there. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. I mean, this is Paul's invitation. Every single one of us, can you do sort of a life scan right this moment or maybe later on today? Do you see the evidence of all the kindnesses of God? I don't mean just the things that you might normally think in sort of religious or spiritual categories of life. I mean, even in the ordinary things of life that you have, that you might even be taking for granted. Paul says, the rain. Have you thought about the rain? Where it comes from, the blessing that it is, giving life, producing crops, supplying for you food, the food that you eat. Have you thought about the food you get to enjoy? Of course, Paul also points Not only to the ways in which God fills our stomachs, but the ways in which he fills our hearts with joy. Every smile, every moment of laughter, a gift to you from the heart of God. This might be something that some of you who maybe aren't so sure what you believe about God might be encouraged to think through. This is what the Bible says. Think about all the blessings, the good things you have in life. Have you thought lately about where those things come from? They're a gift to you from God, his generosity. And please remember, the apostle isn't talking to a wealthy audience. So when he's naming these things, he's not saying because you have so much. Remember, a lot of them were illiterate. A lot of them were of lower income. They did not have much in their life. But he's pointing even to the most simple things, the common joys in life, the air you breathe, the friendship you have, the giggles in your heart. All of this is testimony. The kindness, and the generosity of God. Have you recognized these things in your life lately? Do you recognize all the kindness that God has shown you? The Apostle Paul says, He has not left Himself without testimony. Do you hear, do you see that testimony of God? Do you see evidence of His generosity? Do you know, friends, you cannot outgive God? He will always be the most sacrificial, most generous, most giving person in your relationship with him. And of course, it's not just the natural good things in life that God has given so generously. Of course, the whole story of the matter that the apostle didn't tell in this time, but of course at a later time he did, was to tell the story of the generosity of God seen in Jesus. As you might know in those well-known words, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave. God loved you that he gave and gave and gave his son and gave you promises of forgiveness and gave you new life and gave you his Holy Spirit and gave you a church community that would become a family and gave you his name. A God who gives and gives And gives, do you know this God who gives not only rain from the sky, but who rains down his mercy upon you? A God who gives you not only food to fill your stomach, but gives you food that is the bread of life to your soul. Even Jesus, who gives you eternal life. The God who gives you not just common joys and happiness that is a blessing to all people. But he gives you eternal joy that nothing can take away. Because he's given you himself. Do you know this God of generosity? Do you know this God who calls you out of idolatry? This is the content of the good news that Paul preaches this day. But what was the communication of this good news like? How did he say this? And we will say, we will look at this quickly here as we close up our time. I want you to notice, first of all, that when they spoke, Paul and Barnabas, they spoke selflessly. Look at verses 13 to 15. The priests of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this they sat back and said, bring it to me. Is that what they said? They said, what are you doing? They tore their clothes in dismay that they would be given worship that is due to God alone. They rushed out into the crowd, not whispering, but shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. I mean, friends, it's worth noticing. How did they communicate? Here's the first thing to notice. They refused to be worshiped. They deflected attention. They refused to gain fame and glory from this moment. How different is Barnabas and Paul from so many of us? How different Barnabas and Paul from so many preachers, we must confess? How different from so many ministry leaders, from so many ordinary people that bear the name of Christ and yet continually seek to steal credit from Christ. Do you know this kind of gospel selflessness? (laughs) Refusing glory that is due to God alone. Secondly, they spoke simply and flexibly. Remember in verse 17 and 18, they talk about rain and crops and food and how God fills your heart with joy. Notice they did not quote lengthy passages of scripture from the Hebrew scriptures because they knew that these people would not actually know what they were talking about. They also did not quote from different philosophers and poets of their day. That's something that Paul would do in Athens when he was surrounded by people that were highly educated and liked to speak in philosophical terms. What did they do to connect with these people? They spoke in ordinary terms. Universal human language. They spoke through universal human experience. You ever get hungry? Let's talk. You ever been outside and it starts raining? Okay, we got something to connect over. Are you happy or are you hungry for happiness? Now we're talking. Do you see the love of the labor that the apostles put into in trying to build bridges with everyone and anyone that was in front of them? They spoke simply and notice that means that every single one of you can build bridges with every single person around you. You don't need to know a lot. You don't need lots of degrees. You just need a testimony. Your own story, your own observations about the kindness of God in the world. You too can speak and share about this good news. And notice how they shift gears, speaking to Jewish and religious people in previous chapters and to more elite culturally educated people of influence in latter chapters here speaking to ordinary people like many in this room wonderfully we find the apostles speaking in ways where they're able to shift gears from group to group where they're laboring to redefine their terms depending on the culture of the people that are in front of them Love does that, right? Love slows down. Love thinks about the audience. Love thinks about what would communicate. We call it a love language. Do you know gospel communication? Must be pressed forward with a love language too. Not based upon what's most natural for me, but what's most effective for you. They spoke simply and flexibly. They loved patiently And persistently. I just want to close with this final point. They loved persistently. How did the people respond? Thanks so much. Where's the next Bible study? (laughs) Paul was stoned. Maybe it was because he rejected their initial sacrifices. Maybe they were offended. We don't know. We do know that some people from the next town earlier came down and caused some trouble and persuaded the crowds that these guys were bad news not bearers of good news and so we're told that Paul was stoned and then dragged outside the city first 19 dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead Fred Bruce, a New Testament scholar and commentator on this passage, writes this It's almost taken for granted throughout the New Testament that tribulation is the normal lot of Christians in this age. It is those who suffer for and with Christ now who will share his glory. No cross, no crown. Paul was very clear when he reflected back upon this moment just in the next paragraphs that follow when he's speaking to the Christian disciples later on about what it means to follow Jesus, certainly with this incident in mind, he said, verse 22 in the second half, we must grow through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. How did Paul and Barnabas communicate good news? Through broken flesh, through suffering bodies, Through rejection and hardship. And yet they persisted. And persisted. Because that's what God did for them. Because Paul of course knew that his story was one of God pursuing him. Really, all the days of his life, chasing after him, even as Paul himself violently opposed Jesus. Even killing people that were followers of Jesus. And and God never gave up and kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. And so, of course, that kind of persistence by God changes your life and makes you persistent with others. Where the apostle gets up again And again, and in this case, literally gets up again. It's just mind-boggling scene where he's stoned and left for dead. They're sure he's dead. That's why they drag him outside of the city and leave him in this bloody pile of mess. Eventually, he gains enough strength to do what? Skip town? Get safe? He goes right back into the very same city. Goes right back in. To love all over again. You see friends. Gospel life is hard. Gospel communication is hard to our neighbors. But set aside neighbors. Even to brothers and sisters in the church. It's hard. Community is hard. Confronting sin is hard. Loving the broken is hard. Building cross-cultural relationships is hard. Juggling all of life, whether student loans or rising rent or raising small children or bearing with a broken and depressed heart, whatever, it's hard. Do you know a God who persists and so fills your heart with strength to get up? And persist and to love all over again. Here's a question for you. When you get beaten up and dragged outside, will you get up and get back in? The only way that you can do that, that I can do that, to persist in love like that, is to know a persistent God. The only way to give with that sort of generosity of heart is to know a generous God. The only way for us to love like that, even in the face of badness, is to have our lives overcome with the goodness of God and his Good news. Do you know this, God? Do you know this good news? Both in its content as well as in the pattern of communication that we find in the New Testament. God is for you, not against you. For God so loved you that he gave his only son. Christ, though he was beaten and torn to shreds, And died outside the gates of the city. In his resurrection. He got up and got back in. So that he might get you. Behold your persevering persistent savior. Behold the generosity of God. Behold dear friends. Good news. Let's pray. So we pray that you would come and. Continue to fill our hearts, the fresh vision of your grace, oh God. Change us, change us, rescue us, make us more like you. Make good news good to us and news to us all over again. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.